2: This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes.
3: All right. Here I am. The Agora Podcast Network. Agora is a marketplace of the mind, where intelligent, independent podcasts meet curious and discerning listeners. Our network of shows includes
4: American Biography, The Bohemian Podcast, How Jamaica Conquered the World, The History of the Papacy, The History of England, The History of Alchemy Podcast, Mid-Atlantic, When Diplomacy Fails, 1001 Conversations, History of Anglo-Saxon England, the Secret Cabinet from German. Ten American Presidents. The History of Germany Podcast.
3: The dot Network.com. Listen to Agora today.
4: Before we start the show, I'd just like to remind you all that Roundtable Talk is part of the Agora Podcast Network. The Agora Podcast Network is a network of independently crafted podcasts from some of the best podcasters from around the world. This month, we are featuring the excellent History of China podcast by Chris Stewart. I recommend you go to iTunes, ACAST, or your favorite podcaster of choice today to go and download this excellent series. Hello and welcome to a rather special, impromptu Agora podcast show. I'm Roy Phil Brown from the podcast 10 American Presidents and I'm joined by Ben Jacobs from the podcast Wittenberg to Westphalia who has a BA in international relations and my old friend, or the old mucker as we say in England, Travis Dow from the History of Germany and Bohemian podcast who's not only lived in Germany for 10 years but also lived in the Czech Republic for 10 years so he's had 20 years on the European mainland. Hello gentlemen, how are you? Do you want to go right? Right, now, um, there's been somewhat of an earthquake, geopolitically. Uh, With the UK's historic vote to Brexit, the post-war European status quo that started in 1945 is all but over. We are here to discuss its ramifications. Um, Ben... I'm going to come to you first, because you've got the big brain when it comes to international relations, and I know you're a bit of a lover of all things EU. Give us, for our um, US listeners, a very brief overview of the European project that is the EU. Very, very quickly, because I could talk about this for hours,
5: and I've I've managed to condense it down to a page of notes. Um, To understand the foundation of the EU, we actually have to go back to 1918. And at that time, the Allied governments owed the U.S. a huge amount of money for all the supplies they had bought during the war. The Allies, in turn, were owed a huge war indemnity from Germany under the Treaty of Versailles. And the U.S., in turn, loaned Germany the money to help them rebuild and pay off the debts. Right. Um, all through the 20s, this worked out pretty good. Um, and the U S was making money hand over fist, but when the depression started, countries started erecting tariff barriers to protect their internal businesses from foreign competition. So the U S the UK, Germany, and Japan all had these networks of sweetheart deals. So they thought they could survive, but really what ended up happening was that it shut down international trade, except in these very specific colonial empires or networks of puppet states or what have you. Um, the US actually kind of started it with the Smoot-Hardley Act, but uh, the UK replied in kind by raising a tariff barrier on American goods. So did France, and things went back and forth, and there was this sort of uh, undeclared economic war through the early 30s that people don't really talk about these days, but which had a pretty big hand in extending the Depression. So if we fast forward to World War II, people are looking back on this and going, well, that was a mistake. <laughs> um, Economic issues are clearly a big part of what caused World War II, and so as early as 1942, uh, the U.S. and its allies had begun to plan for what would happen in the post-war order, and economic issues were a very strong part of that. Um, By 1945, it was clear that the opinions of the U.S. and Russia mattered more uh, than everyone else, Um, and the U.S. had a number of competing policy ideas that they – had been developing over the course of the war, which they wanted to see fleshed out in the post-war economic order. Uh, But then the Cold War happened. Uh, No one really saw that coming. So there was sort of a a multi-level post-war order that developed. The first level was this containment order uh, where everyone was uh, keeping communism contained. Uh, And that was not planned. Uh, It was very haphazard and sort of was thrown together on the fly. On the other hand, the order that was established in the West um, between Western countries that was very planned it was very dealer, it was very dear to the heart of American and allied planners, and uh, was something they had a lot of skin in the game on, but it was also mostly economic and so it's not the kind of thing that gets talked about <laughs> a lot uh, in in podcasts and history shows and stuff um, uh, um an international relations expert called John Eikenberry calls this the layer cake approach um, where these various different policy ideas that had been developed in the U S were sort of all put together into a, a very stratified thing. So depending on how you look at it, uh, the top layer could be the Marshall plan, which was set up to stabilize the European economic system. But the Marshall plan money was administered through an organization that of European leaders that the U S insisted be set up so that it's not like the U S is just dumping money on people. And that was the organization for European economic cooperation, the O E E C, which continues today as the international aid organization, the organization for economic cooperation and development, the O -O E O the O (laughs) E C D. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) Um, on the flip side, the Europeans, had one overriding fear in 1945 and it wasn't the communists they were very afraid that the u.s would say all right job well done and go home and leave you know a burned out burned over france italy and G- britain to try and take care of germany and make sure that germany didn't become a threat again um so and this became worse once the marshall plan was announced because you know the u.s was rebuilding germany too and so, you know, we're looking at this nightmare scenario where everybody's all getting U.S. aid. They're all rebuilding. We could be back in 1939 in no time flat. So the Europeans pushed really hard for um, the U.S. to get itself involved in international um, organizations like the U.N. and particularly NATO, um, which was famously founded for the purpose of keeping the Russians out, the Germans down and the U.S. in. Um, I don't want to go into all the aspects of the layer cake because obviously it's really complex. The crowning achievement was probably the Bretton Woods Agreement, uh, which managed the international economy until the 1980s. Isn't that um,
4: where you Americans tricked us out of our global hegemony in terms of the pound?
5: Well, actually, all of this is kind of tricking <laughs> the British at, because, you know, it, free trade was clearly a huge aspect of this whole... Um Arrangement, and despite um, protestations to the contrary during the height of the empire, uh, the British didn't really like free trade as much as they maybe said they did <laughs> they 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 wanted to have the freest trade of all the free trades you know um, they had their empire, and within the empire, and then in the Commonwealth, um, there were supposed to be a bunch of sweetheart deals, and everyone was coordinated as a part of Uh, this sort of semi-free trade or freer trade system. Um, But that free trade didn't apply to everyone else. You know, if you were French, you couldn't come into the trade with a Commonwealth country as if you were England. So a lot of what the U.S. was doing with this post-war settlement, a lot of it follows very strongly on the the 14 points because Roosevelt was a uh, a fan of Wilson. Um, So a lot of it was... But now the U.S. isn't, you know, some Johnny-come-lately-powered. Now the U.S. is like, ha- the U.S. in 1945 had 50% of the world's economic output. <laughs> so mm-hmm. the U.S. walks yeah. into the situation and says, I know you want your colonial empires back, but come on, guys. <laughs> it's not going to happen anymore. Um, so a lot of this was robbing England of its former preeminence. England was no longer the preeminent world power. Um, And everyone knew that, but the U.S. made sure that um, a lot of, you know, Churchill and a lot of British politicians were hoping that they'd have something left, (laughs) some sort of post-colonial economic advantages, and the U.S. sort of made sure that that wasn't the case. And there's... The Commonwealth is still there, and there's still economic advantages to that. But um, the the US made them much less advantageous than they could have been.
4: All right. Um, so, so take take us from Bretton Woods to the formation of the steel and coal uh, union
2: world interest focuses on the Quai d'Orsay, as six European nations, including Western Germany, meet for their first working session on the Schumann Plan for pooling steel and coal. Monsieur Schumann's immediate aim is to thin out economic boundaries between nations, and the latest plan for overall control of the project by an international assembly of MPs may well herald the dawn of a brighter future. Sponsors of the idea think this will be so, in particular, Jean Monnet. But Britain, notable absentee, has not yet made up her mind. Her absence begs the question, can the Schumann plan possibly succeed?
5: This all clearly wasn't just an American hobby horse that was being beaten um the uh, there were a lot of european leaders who were very into having an organized uh european union of some kind uh churchill actually called in 1948 for a united states of europe um there were a lot of people talking along those lines in some capacity um in 1951 the european coal and steel community was formed uh and that was uh it coordinated and managed coal and steel production in the Low Countries, so uh, Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg, uh, then France, and West Germany. Um, and it was just targeted at coal and steel. Uh, and th- mm-hmm. that may not sound like a big deal, but behind the economic aspects were very, very clear political uh mm-hmm military goals because in 1945 you couldn't go to war without coal and steel you needed yeah. coal to make electricity to make the steel which you use to build tanks and planes and guns and all that stuff um and the the goal was to go back to that dream of 1914 and make it economically impossible for european countries to attack each other long term um this was followed up by the benelux political union between the low countries in 1945 uh in 1955 sorry and this, so, the uh, the coal and steel union was nineteen fifty one. The Benelux unions nineteen fifty five. Um, things are starting to happen really fast. Um, and the Benelux union sort of set the political template for the Treaty of Rome, uh, whereas the European coal and steel community was sort of the economic template. Uh, the Treaty of Rome happened in nineteen fifty seven, so two years later, uh, and that established the European Economic Community which was mainly a customs union, but with a regional atomic energy management aspect as well. Um, mm, mm-hmm. And then since Rome, the, there have been renegotiations and additions, both geographically and in terms of scope. That happened sort of every couple of years uh, ever since then. Things get really complicated in the 1980s. Uh, there were as many as eight treaty-like uh, regimes going on simultaneously, organizing all sorts of different aspects of the European economy and political activity. Uh, and this isn't even to start talking about NATO and uh, and other international or treaties like that. Um, in 1992, the Maastricht Treaty sort of simplified things rather significantly um, and created the EU proper, more or less as we know it today. Uh, although it was re- renegotiated again in the Lisbon Treaty in 2007. So that's the the very, very mm-hmm. fast bullet-pointed history of the EU. Um, and just to sort of reflect on uh, the implications of a bit of what I just said, oh, and I should say what the EU is now, um, right at this moment in time before the Brexit goes through and everything else. As it stands right now, there's 28 member states with a number of affiliated states and states seeking admission. Um, mm-hmm. The EU operates. There's a, It's a hybrid um, system of supranational and intergovernmental decision making. So there's international government governing bodies. And then there's bodies that are made up of diplomats. Um, and there's seven of these bodies. Uh, so there's the European Council. The Council of the European Union. The European Parliament. The European Commission. The European Court of Justice. Um, uh, sorry, the, the Court of Justice of the European Union and the European Central Bank and the European Court of Auditors. Several of these bodies are actually democratically elected supranational bodies. So you actually cast a vote and your representative goes out to the European Parliament or whatever. Uh, and several of them are not elected. So diplomats or um, banking officials or whatever make up the, the staff. Um, so that that's the EU as it is right now. Um
4: Well so then, uh, okay. oh sorry, you've got more. No, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead No, and that, what I was gonna say is that what um you haven't quite touched on is the way enlargement has actually happened. So as right. you as you kind of right, rightly said, um is this starts off with West Germany, France and the Low Countries and and Italy. Uh, in terms of the, the, the common market. Um, and then throughout the 1960s, Britain goes through a process of thinking, well, this is nothing to do with us, we shouldn't join. Uh, but, the, but then by the end of the 1960s, Britain does want to join, applies to join, and actually General de Gaulle says no. By <laughs> 1973, Britain does join along with Denmark, um, and then you have, in the in this period of the 70s and the 80s, other Western um, Western European countries that join. So Spain joins with Portugal, with Greece. And, and the EU is kind of somewhat stable until the fall of the communist uh, bloc, ex-communist bloc. So then you have a, a wave of accession which, previous to that, you do have Austria and Sweden join, but then you do have this wave of ex-communist countries, so your Poland, your Czech Republics, etc., join. And then what has probably um, led to Brexit actually is not only Poland joining and the free movement of Labour, but then Romania, Bulgaria, etc., let alone um, other smaller ex-communist countries which it's kind of then join afterwards so we've gone from this core of six countries initially to some 28 now yeah and those six
5: countries while they they're not i mean they all speak different languages and everything they have sort of an interestingly shared culture and particularly a recent historical yeah. experience um whereas the, the eastern european countries are bringing a, a very different uh recent history Mm. to the
4: party. And it has to be said that Britain, um, for kind of geostrategic reasons, wanted there to be a quick accession of countries like Poland because it saw it as a way of weakening this drive for ever greater political union. You know, the British government was so Uh pro that first wave of Eastern European ex-communist countries to join because it, it saw that the Western Club of Countries could mm-hmm. successfully um, unite politically because of a shared politi- uh, political culture and that um, shared uh, history of war and trying to avoid that. Whereas the experience of, let's say, uh, the Czech Republic or Slovakia is going to be somewhat different because they've had 30, 40 years of communism um, which kind of dislocates them from a, a Western European perspective, let alone geography.
5: They're less worried mm-hmm. about continual fights with their neighbors and more worried about giant, um, supranational <laughs> political entities that are oppressing them, maybe. Mm-hmm.
6: the foreign office is red, is what damage this will do to the European idea. Well, I'm sure they do. That's why they support it. Well, surely the foreign office is pro-Europe, isn't it? Yes and no if you'll forgive the expression. The Foreign Office is pro-Europe because it is really anti-Europe. The Civil Service was united in its desire to make sure that the common market didn't work. That's why we went into it.
3: What are you talking about? (laughs) Minister,
6: Britain has had the same foreign policy objective for at least the last 500 years to create a disunited Europe. In that cause... We have fought with the Dutch against the Spanish, with the Germans against the French, with the French and Italians against the Germans, and with the French against the Germans and Italians. Divide and rule, you see. Why should we change now, when it's worked so well? Ancient history, surely. Yes, and current policy. We had to break the whole thing up, so we had to get inside. We tried to break it up from the outside, but that wouldn't work. Now that we're inside, we can make a complete pig's breakfast of the whole thing. (laughs) Set the Germans against the French, the French against the Italians, the Italians against the Dutch. The Foreign Office is terribly pleased. It's just like old times.
3: Surely we're all
6: committed to the European ideal. Really, Minister? (laughs) If not, why are we pressing for an increase in the membership? Well, for the same reason. It's just like the United Nations, in fact. The more members it has, the more arguments it can stir up, the more futile and impotent it becomes. Appalling cynicism. Yes. We call it diplomacy, (laughs) minister.
4: Okay, Um, so I did ask you, Ben, to uh, give us um, your opinion on what exactly has happened in the last week. But I'm gonna now turn it over to you, Travis. You've spent time in, uh, you grew up in Bavaria. And then you spent 10 years of your working life in Prague in the Czech Republic. So your American accent would belie the fact that basically you're a good European, really, aren't you? So um, <laughs> give, give us your perspective. When, when you heard that 52% of Britons had voted to leave the EU, what was your perspective as somebody who understands the German well, and Czech psyche?
1: Yeah. So this is, this is weird because first I thought it was going to be like a close call, like the Scotland getting their independence, uh, referendum where, you know, you know, it's a bad idea, you know, so you're kind of like, well, maybe, you know, it'll have a significant minority for the vote for historical reasons or this or that, or, um, just, you know, the, the rhetoric, uh, but it's not going to go through because it's obviously a bad idea, but then it did go through. And I mean, trying to think like how how did i even you know miss misunderstand the situation um you know that that badly and i and i think part of it is that um it's not even a european thing it's just, it seems like in the states just as it's just as much true that just nationalism is on the rise everywhere and that's kind of that's kind of crazy like actually like what's happening in germany um what's happening in czech republic um that's just the last 10 years really is, is nuts. It's insane. It's something I hoped I'd never have to see and live through. Yeah. Um, but now, you know, in parallel, we have the, the, the elections here in the States and we're seeing a similar, like ugly face of, of, you know, the, the population as a whole. And, um, so that, I mean, all, all those thoughts kind of went through my head when the results kind of came through, um, but, yeah, it's, I'm still kind of in shock, you know, because I I like to I like to talk about history topics where uh, in 10 years from now, I could say I could look back and say, you see how bad of an idea that was. You had another major depression, you you know, this and that happened and you see how bad that was, you know. But now it's like it's almost too fresh. Like I kind of uh, I just want to, you know, kind of kind of want to see what happens with a side of like schadenfreude. I don't know. There's no English word
4: for that, right? Like, it's just, <laughs> yeah. uh,
1: you know, to to look upon others. Oh, we've um, now
4: adopted that word as, as being English. Yeah.
1: yeah, like, yeah. So, you know, you just watch their stumblings and kind of smile and, like, shake your head. Um, I, you know, unfortunately, that's, that's kind of how I want to feel about, like, Trump, for instance. But I live here now and I can't. Uh, but I, But I saw that when I lived in the Czech Republic. I just moved away a year and a half ago. And I saw that there, too, like a, a rise of nationalism and even like my friends and colleagues um, that, you know, be talking over beers. And I was kind of like, you know, I'm talking to you in a foreign language like my Czech is is horrible. And like I'm talking to you in a foreign language. And I, you know, I came here illegally and and, uh, you know, took a Czech person's job, no doubt, like for sure. Like that definitely happened. I took several of them, in fact. Um, and And yet, like you're treating me like I'm not you know, like I'm, I'm somebody else. Like, I don't know, you know, like, but, but the, the, the rise of nationalism was, uh, noticeable everywhere. Like in, in, in Germany it is. And that's just like, wow, I just never, uh, would have thought growing up there, I would have said it's the most, um, just, you know, anti, anti anti-Semitic country. They just won't tolerate that kind of hate, um, anymore. Just to clarify,
5: that's anti-anti-Semitic. <laughs>
1: yes. Yeah, anti-anti-Semitic. That wasn't a stutter. It was like yeah. uh, they're, they're pro, not pro-Jewish, but they just they won't tolerate anti-Semitism. You know, that's the Germany that I knew growing up. And that Germany has changed. Like now, if you look at the the, the parties, um, the rightist parties, like they're at getting, oh, I don't even know the very current, current numbers, but 10, 15. Uh, 20% of the vote which is like astounding to me just like what what is happening and you you know you just see it in the news you see it in the streets um
4: the travis but yeah. I, 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 you so, there, so is, there definitely is a movement throughout europe I, throughout yeah. the west for more nativist politics there is okay but i think it's it's interesting though that let's say the freedom party in germany or Jean Marie Le Pen's, um, not Jean Marie Le Pen's. It's now it's his uh, daughter's party, isn't it? Uh, but Le Pen's National Front in France. Oh, yeah. um, they're not nationalist um, in the strict 1930 sense, which is purely country first. What they also say is countries like us are fine. So, and I think that kind yeah. of gets gets yeah. to the so. Uh, the French, but I mean,
1: quite, Poland and Hungary is also going through similar movements, and I mean, yeah, I get, oh, It's just, it's just, yeah. No, I know what you're saying. Actually, I was going to ask. You, I was going to turn that around and be like, okay, so, so what is the British version of what were what were the Brexit's main arguments? And 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 I I know how we see them, right? Mm. We, I mean, I look at that and like, whoa, wow, I didn't know England was that racist. Frankly.
4: Oh, okay. uh, you know, to put oh, it bluntly. Okay. Uh,
1: but but that's not that's not how they ran. That's not they didn't say hey get the you know what what were their other arguments? Their other
4: economic and no, and the... uh, you know arguments
1: for for actually that won the 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 vote. I mean, how did you know what okay. were they saying?
4: Well, so Ben gave us a masterful sweeping historical narrative of uh, the European Union. Um Britain very obviously for reasons of geography and history has a very different perspective um, on European integration than let's say the French or the Germans and you've got to I think it's one of the crowning glories of the European Union uh, that people have forgotten that one of its main reasons for existing was to prevent war because you look at uh, here we are in 2016 and it is inconceivable that germany would attack poland or that france yeah. would invade uh germany etc etc and that is in large part that is you know down to the success of economic integration so yeah. and so in a way the eu is being a victim of its own success that uh brits can just think oh this is just all about selling stuff and Poles walking into the country. Yes, that is in large part what the EU is about, but it's not the only thing. It's to safeguard us from war. You know, so the Germans and the French they understand this much more viscerally than than the Brits, because viewed from nineteen forty-five, they had had eighty years of, uh, of fighting each other, three three wars, uh, which had, which had which had laid waste to, uh, in effect, to the western half of the uh, of the whole continent periodically, the, so the Brits we we didn't have that experience though we went to war in two of those three wars we didn't have that experience yeah
1: so it's not as acute it's no, not as it's not it's not that, that it's not,
4: need to it's not yeah and then and then you have a situation whereby um, yeah yes we had this empire blah 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 the uh, the your your average Brit has no. Uh, conception as to how broke the country was after the end of the second world war that britain was technically and actually bankrupt we have we have no understanding and one-fifth the economic
5: output of the united
4: states yeah you know we, we we've gone from in 1914 from having an economic output which was at least the same, if you take the empire and whatever, as the United States. And I think we we were ahead still by 1914, though the United yep. States is growing rapidly. And then, what, some some 20-odd years later, um, we are, you know, at a best, a, a proportion of that. So that's how far we rapidly fall. And, and those Brits don't really kind of get that and we don't so we don't get how far we felt economically we don't get um the emotional um, pull of the eu in terms of bulwark against war um we we go it's too yeah it's it's the u.s has that same problem maybe maybe even amplified well and and Um, so you should because you've got a massive ocean you know between you yeah right so so we don't get that. But then by the, the late 1960s, the British economy, though still growing, isn't growing as fast as the West German and the French. So we get passed by Germany. I, I don't know exactly when, but let's say the late 1960s, early, early 1970s. And Britain is seen in the 1970s as, as the sick man of Western Europe economically economically. We, we go for, a, and this is very kind of post-colonial. So we, we, we don't have an empire anymore. And we say to ourselves, what the hell is the point of the United Kingdom? You know what? We, we cannot be getting New Zealand butter anymore or lamb from Australia, etc. We need to trade with the countries uh, closer to us and have ever greater union. And that was a massive psychological shift but it was sold to us completely as a common market which is what the eu was was called back right. then. this is going to right. give us a free trade space area with our neighbors of which we have um emerging markets with look how well the germans are doing look at all these shiny bmws uh we need to compete uh we, we need to be in this marketplace so we go into this with a in nineteen seventy-three now we have a referendum in nineteen seventy-five where the British public is asked to underline the the decision the government has made. And and we and we go in. But we go in saying we're not interested in in ever greater union, which wasn't really on the cards back then. But we, we went in going, we're keeping a wary eye on this. We are Great Britain after
2: all. Well, the vote on whether to stay or leave the uh, European community is just two days away now, and our guest in Newsday tonight is the leader of the Conservative Party, Mrs. Margaret Thatcher. Mrs. Thatcher, I think there seems to be a feeling that uh, because you've made only one major speech or so uh, about the European question, and uh, that you've therefore left it largely to others to arise a feeling of deep commitment over Europe, that you're perhaps a, a lukewarm European yourself.
7: Not in the least. Uh, I hope that showed from the way in which we took the debate in the House of Commons right at the beginning. And then, of course, I did launch the Conservative effort for staying in Europe, and then did another European speech. My speeches on Europe have mainly been on my tours about the country as leader of the opposition, when I've dealt usually with three things, first, the economy, secondly, Europe, and thirdly, whatever was the major topic of the day.
1: Back then, the currency wasn't an issue, no, which no. is interesting. Yeah. No, it, So now it's kind of with an understanding that if you join, that's step one. Step two is you'll eventually get our
4: currency. Hmm. Um, and Britain resisted that. They were like, whoa, no, we never agreed to that. Yeah, no. And we have never signed up to, uh, though Churchill might have talked about the United States of Europe, yeah. Post the yeah, Second yeah, World War. That that never had any truck politically in, mm-hmm. in, in the UK. And it definitely didn't when, when the chips were down. And we're talking about the 1970s when we actually joined. We have joined mm-hmm. this free association of states who can trade together, knock together some laws which basically agree, um, you know, what is what is a potato what is orange juice so if we're going to sell it we're all selling the same thing to to our markets that's fundamentally what we've signed up to and we are uh, and and that's it but then the problem comes whereby in the late 80s we sign up to the exchange rate mechanism which is a way of every European country has its, still has its own currency back then but it's a way that, uh, which basically regulates the movement of these currencies and by the early 1990s um, the exchange rate mechanism kind of falls down and we exit from that and that's the closest we've come to surrendering the pound
7: Mr. Chairman, you have invited me to speak on the subject of Britain and Europe. Perhaps I should congratulate you on your courage. If you believe some of the things said and written about my views on Europe, it must seem rather like inviting Genghis Khan to speak on the virtues of peaceful coexistence. Our links to the rest of Europe, the continent of Europe, have been the dominant factor in our history. But we know that without the European legacy of political ideas, we could not have achieved as much as we did. From classical and medieval thought, we have borrowed that concept of the rule of law, which marks out a civilized society from barbarism. The European community is one manifestation of that European identity, but it is not the only one. We must never forget that east of the Iron Curtain, peoples who once enjoyed a full share of European culture, freedom and identity have been cut off from their roots. We shall always look on Warsaw, Prague and Budapest as great European cities. Nor should we forget that European values have helped to make the United States of America into the valiant defender of freedom which she has become. The European community belongs to all its members. It must reflect the traditions and aspirations of all its members. And let me be quite clear. Britain does not dream of some cosy, isolated existence on the fringes of the European community. Our destiny is in Europe as part of the community. That is not to say that our future lies only in Europe, but nor does that of France or Spain, or indeed of any other member. The community is not an end in itself, nor is it an institutional device to be constantly modified according to the dictates of some abstract intellectual concept, nor must it be ossified by endless regulation. Willing and active cooperation between independent sovereign states is the best way to build a successful European community. To try to suppress nationhood and concentrate power at the centre of a European conglomerate would be highly damaging and would jeopardise the objectives we seek to achieve. Europe will be stronger Precisely because it has France as France, Spain as Spain, Britain as Britain, each with its own customs, traditions, and identity, it would be folly to try to fit them into some sort of identical European personality
4: so you have the situation whereby um, in the uh, in the 90s it is Br- British government policy to very clearly say look these germans these french these italians they're up to something here they want a united states of europe we don't want that however there are benefits to being part of the eu Um, we have the schengen area we have a free movement of of workers that's quite nice it means we can nip to france without showing our passport uh etc we can you know we can have nice holidays in greece and there's no visas etc um, so we get, we say, let's get Poland in, let's get the Czech Republic, let's get in all these countries as quickly as, as possible because it will weaken the original core of the EU. Deliberate British policy. Mm-hmm. However, yeah, yeah. it's completely a geopolitical and economic counterweight. And there was some talk back in the early 2000s that because the, the beating heart of the European Union is is germany and is the relationship between germany and france it's germany yeah. economically but politically france is as important if not economically because that is the union that's what the whole yeah. thing that, is all that's, about that's
1: mirrored again in the currency yeah when the currency happened it was like there those were the countries propping it up and like guaranteeing
4: it and and know yeah, exactly. that kind of thing exactly yeah. this and britain has never been part of that and there was a talk in the early 2000s that what Britain could be the de facto leader of is the slightly less associated uh, states or the other states. So um, Britain and Poland could form a little bit of an axis to counterbalance Germany and France, etc. But we don't have the political will in this country, really, to massively engage um, with with the eu in that way so that kind of fell by the wayside but poland is very significant in in all of this and that is the reason why we've we've led to a situation whereby this vote happened so when poland joined the eu um potentially this meant that and i think the population of poland is about 35 million This meant that, in theory, 35 million Poles, just to use Poland as an example, because other countries came in at the the same time as Poland, Mm -hmm. Uh, an an economy which was at best had two-thirds of the GDP of Western Europe, it meant that 35 million Poles had freedom of movement, Anywhere within the EU. Now, the Germans were somewhat worried about this. So that's the next, you know, Western European country along. So Germany said, we're going to put a moratorium on total free movement of Poles straight away. That's right. Yeah. And I think Germany said it was five years. I I forget exactly the figure. But the Germans said, no, uh, this isn't going to happen. And so did the French. And so did just about everybody else. Significantly, the British said, nah, it's fine. Tony Blair took, uh, took the risk and said, no, it, it's fine. And the Labour government, I think, estimated that something like 35,000 polls a year would move. Now, in the 10 plus years of this open door policy to Poland, there are now 1 million polls within the UK. It cannot be overemphasised, gentlemen. The seismic and cultural shock this has had on the average British high street, or main street, as you Americans would say. Polish is now the second language in the UK. Will we need to revise this to Bulgarian or Romanian next year?
6: Yes, this, um, this figure out <clears> that nearly half a million people in England,
2: in Britain, I should say, now speak Polish, and uh, the number of people learning French and German is falling. The number of people learning Polish is going up. Alan Johnson, how do you interpret this? And obviously the question's about... Bulgarian yeah. remain in immigration oh. next year. Poland's <laughs> a much a bigger country, and uh, I think uh, I've got lots of Polish friends. There has to be a second language. I think Welsh is actually, if you take England and Wales, and Poland comes th- first. And anyone could speak... Uh, comes second. Anyone who could speak Polish deserves my full admiration because it's a very different, difficult language to speak. Will this happen with Romania and Bulgaria? And this is the issue, uh, I think, about January 2014. You know, if I was the EU Commission, I would seek to find a way to put that decision back by four or five years, and i tell you why. It's not about an issue of being anti-immigrant. My concern is that if they lift that uh, restriction, then Romania will lose a lot of... and Bulgaria will lose a lot of their finest talent. I would like to see in the European Union some kind of GDP measure that says once you've reached that GDP measure, once your country is at a certain level of prosperity, that's when free movement kicks in. Because if you do that, you can ensure that countries coming into the European Union, who by definition are usually much poorer and take time, that's why there's seven years, one of the reasons why there's seven years is there, that there's actually a chance to extend that for the sake of that country as well. Uh, I think in terms of what happened with the Polish population coming here history is being rewritten. In 2004-05, I was a minister at the time. We had, we had a highest rate of employment ever known in this country, and we had 600,000 vacancies. The reason why us, Sweden and Ireland all lifted that restriction early, is because our economy and our employers told us it was necessary to do that. Yes, it's right, more people came than was expected. That so Ed Miliband said that it was a mistake. You, you don't think it was that a mistake? That won't happen this do you time. Do think it was a mistake no, or not? I, don't think, I, I disagree with Ed in terms of... Uh, I think, in hindsight, you would get, have a better grasp of the numbers. If you knew that many number was coming, then you'd look okay. at it again. All right. Uh, Dom Jolly, we have to be rather swift here because we're coming towards the end. I, I mean, I sort of get what this question is basically about, is, you know, are we going to allow people to come into this country? And people, there seems to be a... There was a, something sort of a bit pernicious about saying, oh, Polish is suddenly the second biggest language. I mean, I have a problem, I think, with sort of ghettoization if people come in and don't learn English and kind of don't assimilate. But to me, Polish is, I mean, A, the most complicated language in the world, so anyone can speak it, fantastic. But I think most Poles speak English anyway, so I, I don't see it as a particular problem. I hope there will be possibly slightly more control on romanian and bulgarian uh coming in because i think people i've no problem people coming in who are actually going to work but i think if people are coming in supposedly to to sponge us or whatever
1: this this was pointed out to me i gotta say this was pointed out to me by a taxi driver in edinburgh last time i was in scotland he's like oh yeah when i grew up in this neighborhood it was oh and i was just like oh my god like do you not realize that you're talking to a foreigner but he, he was complaining. I mean, he was like, yeah. you know, I don't, but, I don't remember exactly what he said, but, but uh, you know, uh, again, like, this used it used to be a nice white neighborhood, basically. You know, and I was like, <laughs> oh, my God.
4: Yeah, well, uh, if these were one million French people, um, this wouldn't really yeah, matter. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's something which we, we talked about just before we actually started to record. And it's what I call this kind of theory of uh, cultural concentric circles. So you take a country... and and let's say a Western European country, and generally, um, it kind of goes like this, that there are the core countries immediately around you, and you are fine with those. So nobody sees, you know, I think there's something like 3 million people that can hold an Irish passport within the UK. Nobody sees them as immigrants. They're the Irish. We like the Irish. It's our next-door neighbours. People, a Which lot of fine, British people know. don't even see Ireland as a separate country. We've had open borders with Ireland ever since the Irish Republic was founded. Um, the Irish are fine. Ditto but the French. So you can go to London. You can go to South Kensington in London which is an overwhelmingly French area, but it's, but people see it as cosmopolitan, she, she, and lovely. And you can walk into a boulangerie and somebody's there speaking French and you are in London. That is fine. Ditto, um, in the 70s, there's all this talk of Swedish au pairs and, and it, then there were the Italian nannies in the 90s. That's fine, right? Culturally, these are people who the Brits line up against. Yeah. Line up with, sorry, not against. Yeah. So that is fine. The difference then comes when you start to then move out, so Austrians are fine, they're not a problem Danes are fine, they're not a problem. We understand that, that the that's the growing
1: pains i mean you get you get used to having kill bosses and
4: and pivo or whatever yeah. i mean uh, uh, but yeah. but then the but the issue. Then comes with countries of which you don't have this shared historical right. and let 's call it antagonism, so you know the Germans and the Brits went at it for a few wars, but we said, you know what we we understand you, you are like us, your economy's kind of like like ours you 're as rich as us, um, you look like us." We we understand the nuance. We understand a certain amount of the nuances of your culture. You, have this you cli- go to the va- vacation on the same places. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> we play each other. We play each other in football. You know, every yeah. four years. We and as bad as things are, all we want to do is just beat you at football. So that's one concentric circle of cultural familiarity. Then. You have uh, the next concentric circle, which is the ex-communist countries who are, let's say, uh, non-Balkan. So Poles, oh, they're a little bit different. They've got funny script and whatever, but they kind of look like us. Uh, So that would be Poland, Czech Republic, Hungary, um, Slovakia, uh, all the Baltic states. All right. But then there's another concentric circle, and then this is where then people just start to draw a line. And I'm talking about specifically about the UK now, which is your Bulgarians and your Romanians.
1: France had big problems, if you remember, uh, a couple years ago. France was also saying, and, and I oh, I, I like it was specifically about the Roma, I believe, um, saying that 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 they that Romanians need to have a border or like a passport control or that or this or that kind of thing. Um, you know, limit the the movement of of people. Uh, just a couple of years ago, it was when I was still living in Prague. Yeah, but I was kind of surprised then. It was like, you know, if it's the EU, you, I mean, you need to get over the growing pains. You let Bulgaria in or and Romania. You just well, need to be okay with that now. You need well, to is, like, accept what that means.
5: This this longstanding anti-Gypsy? Uh, if if, if I'm allowed to use that word, anti-gypsy bigotry that has been a longstanding thing in Europe in general. But that's, it's,
2: yeah, or,
1: when they brought in Romania and Bulgaria, maybe they didn't think about it, maybe, you know, I don't know what, but then they're suddenly like, oh, we have a significant Roma population,
4: uh, gypsy population of people, I don't know,
1: I, I, it's offensive,
4: you know, no, that terrible. You, you know, and, and it's but, significant. As somebody who is of color, who sees himself as English uh, and British, um, the only the last bastion of let's say polite out and out racism in Britain is actually Roma. So nobody, not just Britain,
1: Ch- well, but checks blew my mind. But, I mean, they, so uh, but, listen, when I was on I this, teacher, sorry though, to interrupt.
4: But, go, go, go.
1: Well, I was just going to just quick anecdote, anecdote that they they would say, Oh, you know, we're not we you know, we don't we don't um we don't hate other people. We don't hate this or that. um You know, we're not anti-Semitic anymore, uh, except for gypsies, of course. And I was just like, what? And they're like, yeah. I mean, you know, they're every, they're they just don't want to be part of society and they're this and that. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And they're discriminated against to this day, like all the way up and down school system to, to the labor force. It's it's that's an
5: issue. Mm. You get down a pretty deep rabbit hole with that, but I, yeah, I, that's, I mean, but,
1: but that does come down. That's, that's part of this is, yeah. uh, so Czechs also did not accept the currency. Mm. They still have the Czech crown, but, um, and you but know, this I'll, rise I'll, of I'll... nationalism, there's the, there's the check out movement. You know, you guys have Brexit. There is, there is this, there's the check out that's next. Uh, I don't, I mean, they're just right in the middle of, of Euro countries. It can't happen,
4: but uh there's a, there's a movement to leave for sure but okay but what, let's try and understand um the reason for this for this movement to leave which um, yeah, what, is, what is, is is Britain, is britain's uh move to say that it wants to exit is that going to cause contagion number 1 and maybe you can an- answer that uh, ben but then number 2 Uh, and and let's switch it the other way around number one um, why is it that there are certain elements of the population in Britain and then possibly in Europe that are anti uh, uh, the free movement of of labour what what has it done to their communities and then number two is there a potential for contagion um, in let's say Holland in Sweden in in France with the Front National for example that uh, we could see other referendum uh, to pull their countries out of the EU Ben what do you think uh um so as to the, the
5: why of uh being opposed to free movement I'm you know th- there's some pretty basic uh human reactions to just being afraid of other people who aren't familiar who don't have, yeah, uh, you know, a shared experience. And, um, that actually gets to the, the basis of what a nation is because, you know, we, we feel this connection to, uh, I mean, other people, I, for me, other people who are from the United States or whatever. Um, but it's based on nothing. I don't know them from Adam. There, there's a lot of people here <laughs> and most of them I probably don't like. Um, The the whole nation thing is built on a shared set of myths and legends and culture and and things like that. And having someone who doesn't share that same set of values necessarily um, makes it so you have to work a little bit harder to communicate properly. Uh, And most people don't have the patience for that. And I think, you know, react with anger. A lot of the times, yeah. It's a, it's I think you have fan. to
1: mention hand in hand with fear is in many, many, many cases a lack of education. It's just a very simple. It's the people that haven't. You're not going to. So I, I've come across dozens of Brits in in Prague as expats, and not a single one of them voted. According to my Facebook page, when it happened, not a single one of them voted Brexit. They were all remainers. Um, and that's just you know the people that travel, the people that leave expats, um, they're not going to be you know they're not going to think like that. They're not going to vote that that certain way. So
4: fear and then lack of education, you know. But but, but, yeah. but I think we do a disservice to kind of a, it's, it's a, a lot of people. That, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. no, I, that that needs to be said also. Yeah. Yeah. I know. You know, we. <laughs> uh, uh, my mother. So my immigrant mother, who's been in the United Kingdom for 50 odd years, 54 years, something like that, she voted to leave. And we had words. What was her reason? Yeah, I'm 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 going to come on to her reasons. We had words, to put it mildly. Now, number one, um, she said that she was voting because there were... Too many immigrants, people coming over to the United Kingdom and they don't. And she basically said what you said, Ben. She said she did. They don't share our values. Okay, she said they don't work as hard. They want benefits, etc. Now, any economist will tell you that in terms of working hard, Immigrants work harder than the host population wherever they go. They take the crappiest jobs, they take jobs which the host population doesn't want to do, and they absolutely work harder. Yeah. And they're, happy they're a to do net yeah. and they're a net economic positive. Absolutely mm-hmm. they are. And specifically in the in the United Kingdom, as an example, um, our National Health Service would literally collapse. If you were to And no one's saying this, even the most rabid uh, lever is not saying this. But if you were to say to all the Poles, all the Bulgarians, all the whoever's um, right, who are working in the National Health Service, you know, you leave tomorrow, the thing would collapse. So they're an absolute bedrock into the the UK economic and and labour force. Absolute, you know, so... It, they would absolutely. The whole thing would just collapse around its ears. But there is a perception that these people are taking jobs. There is a perception, yeah. which has been re- been fed to certain people um, by uh, I would say by a right wing press that yeah, these that, people that are different. They don't want to integrate, and it's ironic in in the extreme, that here is an immigrant whose skin colour marks her out as being um, a British person, but with um, a short tale of a history to explain the reason why she's there. Because my mother can't pass for somebody who is British through and through. She can't. She's a hyphenated Brit. Okay? Right. Um, That she does not equate herself and the The way that she was perceived when she first came to Britain in the nineteen sixties, with the way that the Poles are or the Bulgarians, and I mean, shouldn't she have memories of you know some sort of uh, discrimination? Because because she sees that these people don't share our values. Interesting, you know. To though I was horrified. Uh, to put it mildly, when my mother told me that she voted to leave. My dad voted to stay. So, you know, that that literally 50-50 British split was is yeah. manifest in my parents' household. <laughs> right through the household. Right. Ouch, yeah. Right. Um, but what a lot of older people from the Commonwealth would say is that, yes, but we Commonwealth people, we kind of understand Britain... Uh, When my mother, when my father came here, Jamaica was still a colony of the British Empire, and they still had pounds, shillings, and pence in Jamaica. Mm -hmm. You know, the Queen is still the Queen of Jamaica. She's not only just the Queen of the United Kingdom and the Queen of Canada. She's and Australia. She's the Queen of Jamaica. So there are cultural ties that those people feel towards the the uh, the United Kingdom, which. I I'm gonna be quite honest about about it, that some older people in the United Kingdom do not feel towards them. You know, they don't. Right. But those yeah. that but that generation does feel that towards but, the United Kingdom. Yeah, so, so maybe, the, maybe so the your polls, mother
1: would be okay with, with um anybody from the Commonwealth, no matter where what part of the Commonwealth they're from. She would uh, just be more rather than, be than more, somebody from Eastern Europe. She'd be more I right don't, about know.
4: it. But but it gets but it, yeah. get, but it I mean, gets to but you know, my, my talking about uh, people of black and Asian descent who voted leave could well be a bit of a uh, fundamental mi- misnomer. I don't think it is in ju- in, um, in, let's say, in Birmingham, in my hometown, because there's a large part of the population of Birmingham which is non-white. And Birmingham voted just 50. Like, Birmingham is going to be, if not the first, the second UK city where... Uh, white folks are in the minority. So that tells you how big the immigrant population is in Birmingham or the the non-white population is in Birmingham and it voted just 50%, 51%, 51 51.1% to to leave. So that's a lot of people with brown skin and black skin voting to leave. But at at the core of this um, anger against the EU in Britain and I think it's uh, it has um it has a mirror in u.s and other in u.s politics is the angry white working class person who feels disenfranchised and this has got really this isn't the fault of the eu this is globalization so you have northern cities or northern towns which are historically uh Bastions of the Labour Party, that's the left leaning political party within the UK. And these these cities are post industrial. So, what London has managed to do is, um, when uh, throughout the 1960s and the 70s, you know, uh, there was a London had had docks, London had great swathes of manufacturing textiles where in 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 eastern london in east london which is where um in the 1930s uh there was massive waves of jewish emigration but then oswald mosley fought uh with uh, with jews and with socialists and with communists in 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 shoreditch you had a massive textile industry there up until quite recently, you had the docks in Canary Wharf uh, and in uh, which is Docklands. You had you had whole swathes of industry which were based in London, manufacturing industry. You don't have that anymore. London has successfully transitioned itself in the last thirty years into a successful post-industrial uh, unit. Mm-hmm. That has not happened. Mm-hmm as uh, successfully in my hometown of Birmingham. It's not been unsuccessful. Yeah, But it's, yeah. It's, it's happened more successfully in Manchester, but it hasn't happened in places like Bolton, in Preston, in Bradford, these northern cities, which were the, um, the workhorse actually of the British Empire. And it's in yeah. those areas that the Leave vote has been stunning because these communities have been victims of globalizations The, you know seem so you, you have these Lancaster mill towns the Prestons and your Burnley's and whatever that historically uh, were all built on cotton but those the, jobs are now they, in they Bangladesh
1: also right I mean because but, nothing's really gonna change even if if uh I mean, ah, uh, they're 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 not going to change like the free market or the free trade agreements with with the EU
4: and everything that goes along with that. But that 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 is my point, though, is that yeah, we but got that was to, their hope got, at least, got right? To, before we even get to this, is the hope? Um, I mean, lib, I mean why know, would they?
5: I mean, ah, uh, there's just <laughs> well, so this is thinking in my mind. I can jump in. But if One second in, there, Ben,
4: because I'm going sure, to sure. absolutely make my point. I know I'm somewhat kind of, kind of meandering here. We have That's to fine. acknowledge that there are areas, areas of the UK which are mirrored throughout Western Europe, which are relatively speaking blighted. Relatively speaking. in the States too, yeah. Yes, I know you have Detroit, you have the Rust Belt in the Midwest. Absolutely. And what globalization has done is taken away traditional jobs, which for generations were done in these areas and nothing has come to replace it. And what people have been told is that free trade is a panacea of all. It's great, it's wonderful, it's smashing, it's super. Look at the fact that in Williamsburg in New York, this hipster can just open up a coffee shop look at look at all this great software which has being developed in this in silicon valley america is this great engine of technological change you know wow look at london it's this great cosmopolitan place where russians hang out with with italians and and they drive german cars and 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 all that and all that is true but that stuff, that stuff, that urban renewal, that, in, that industrial economic growth isn't happening evenly. It's not happening in right. Cleveland. Yeah. It's not happening right. in Bolton. It's not happening in Lille in France, you know, and that is the reason why people are really voting against this new status quo. It just so happened that people were asked... Uh, people were told the EU is great for us all and the EU has been a net benefit to the United Kingdom but its benefits have not been evenly spread and these towns have just felt neglected they felt marginalized my mother said there are no jobs for my kids I said mum I'm fine don't worry about me and Yeah, I I am an example. Though I'm in the United States, of somebody who believes in the free movement of labour. I picked myself up. I'm now in the states. I'll, you know. know, So, oh hey, tell me about it. Yeah, I mean. So I'm fine, right? Um, But the perception is, in which fifty percent of Brits have this perception, and I'm sure if you just scratch the surface of, of of Germany that you know there's a reason why there are far right parties which are on the rise in eastern germany because all the same economic uh things are happening yeah, there oh in yeah. in Coming leipzig up, yeah, oh
2: yeah. in
4: dresden people are saying wait on a minute this shiny great future it doesn't apply to me where is the that job that i can do You know, do an honest day's work without having to go to university or put myself through debt. What is that job that I can do? And and then I can, you know, bring home money to bring up my family. And yeah. we've and we've forgotten about those areas. We've forgotten about them, and and this has come to bite us in the ass in the United Kingdom. Well, where's with this referendum where's cause result. and
1: effect there? How is leaving the EU going to change that? How is electing Trump going to change that? How and
3: is? It, a, listen, it, know, make, electing... it makes
4: it worse, and and but you know, I believe that twenty percent of this vote was a protest vote. This was um, yeah, a referendum yeah. on Cameron. On the EU, on globalization, on frustration.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah.
4: So uh, I
1: think if they just did the referendum over again, they might be like, oh, whoa. And it might it, be like it wouldn't 70, pass. 30. It, yeah, it wouldn't,
4: if, that, if the referendum vote happened today.
0: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend
4: that this was completely the wrong move.
1: Right. Okay, so now I got a question for you, because the referendum is not legally binding, actually. No, no
4: it's and, not. And
1: uh, so now people are reeling from the, oh, wait a minute, and people are quickly educating themselves and finding out that, oh, this, you know, it might not actually do anything positive at all. Um, and uh, so now, so they haven't, it's not like they they have resigned from the EU by by no, voting.
4: This was no. just... Article like 50 world. needs to be invoked, and Article 50 hasn't, and that is the mechanism where, 50, yeah, yeah, which is whereby, yeah, whereby, yeah, whereby a country actually exits. So it hasn't actually been invoked. But so, do you think there's a chance that they might just not? They might just whoever okay.
3: replaces you Cameron, heard it, or... You
4: heard it here first. The United Kingdom is not going to leave the European Union. There right? you go, and the something like this is going to happen. This, this whole situation is evolving as we speak in that. I'm I'm so happy to hear that. I'm I'm still kind of in shock.
1: Like if, if I'm, I'm in denial, basically, I'm like, no, it can't actually happen. And I've been reading it and like, well, yeah, you know, they might still, they might postpone it to postpone article 50. Um, but yeah, go ahead. What do you, what do you think is
4: actually going to happen now? Um, something like this is going to happen and as i kind of hinted at just since we've been talking things are are moving at a rapid pace in the united kingdom so um this this doesn't number one this referendum result doesn't bind parliament actually to taking us out of the european union though such a big song and dance has been made about the whole thing that it be a very brave parliament, the way it's currently constructed, that turned round and actually said, "Screw you, Brit- British public." Okay. Yeah. So right. what what we're actually having, um and preceding the vote, there's massive Tory infighting. The Tories are the the Conservative Party, which lines up with the Rep- the Republicans in, in in the U.S. So the whole reason for this vote was so that Cameron, the Prime Minister, could quell Backbench dissent uh, amongst MPs that wanted to wanted to have lesser engagement with the EU, and he thought, "I'll have this referendum. It'll put that to bed, so that I can clearly go on and do my business because we are definitely part Is of the EU."
1: Same thing with Scottish independence. Is that was that the same idea?
4: Uh, yes and no, but it wasn't a Tory infighting. Thing. Partially. Oh, okay. So okay, you got yeah. the Tory party that from the time of Thatcher onwards, has been, at least 50% of it has been Eurosceptic. It's gone, mm. Okay, the, These Germans and these French are talking about political union. God damn it, we're British. We don't want any part of that. We just want to sell stuff and buy stuff. Okay? Um, so, uh, so you say so this Tory infighting has gone over... The over onto on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So, number one, Cameron has now stepped down because the Conservative Party's official title is the Conservative and, Conservative and Unionist Party of the United Kingdom is its uh, official uh, title. You cannot be a Tory leader and basically preside over the disillusionment of the United Kingdom. And this was, and this was such a political gamble by uh, by Cameron that he's fallen on his sword straight away and said, okay, yeah. I-, I need to so, go, yeah. right? But, and here is the interesting thing. So Boris Johnson, who's the mayor of London, who has been a massive proponent for leave, and it, it, it kind of shocked everybody that actually he was pro-leave, and many people have seen his political opportunism by him. If you're the mayor of London, London is the, one of the most diverse cities in in the world if arguably mm-hmm. if actually isn't why would you then turn around and then yeah. say within um you know a month of of, of leaving leaving the mayorship of london that you are in effect anti-immigration because behind yeah. all this leave stuff is is protectionism is smaller governance yes that might be um you, you might be able to, to to do that and hold your head up uh you know, economically and whatever, but you cannot be the mayor of London and then also say, but actually we don't want a free movement of labour because that's what London's, London's success yeah. in the last oh, 20 years yeah. has been built on. Like, all the American bankers that are there, all the Germans, the Italians, the, the Russians, whatever. And now Boris,
7: Boris Johnson. <laughs>
8: At the end of this campaign, I think you'll agree there is a very clear choice between those on their side who speak of nothing but fear of the consequences of leaving the EU, and we on our side who offer hope. Between those who have been endlessly rubbishing our country and running it down and those of us who believe in Britain. They say we can't do it. We say we can. They say we have no choice but to bow down to Brussels we say they are woefully underestimating this country and what it can do. If we vote leave, we can take back control of our borders, of huge sums of money, 10 billion pounds a year net, of our tax-raising powers, of our trade policy and of our whole law-making system, the democracy that is the foundation of our prosperity. And if we stand up for democracy, we will be speaking up for hundreds of millions of people Around Europe, who agree with us, but who currently have no voice. And if we vote Leave and take back control, I believe that this Thursday can be our country's independence day.
4: So there is now a move within the Tory Party because everybody because he was he is the heir uh, assumptive in terms of leading the Tory Party, which means he be the next British Prime Minister that there is um, such anger with the Remain Tories that people are trying to block him from automatically becoming um, the leader oh, okay. of, of the yeah. Tory party. Interestingly, though, the the Labour Party, so this is another pro-Remain uh, party, um, because all these working-class areas voted to leave, that um, the new... Leader of the Labour Party Jeremy Corbyn, who's quite left, is as left as Bernie Sanders is in the states. That um, there's a vote of no confidence is going to be tabled by the Parliamentary Labour Party, um, I believe, on Tuesday. But already half of his shadow cabinet have actually resigned. So since I've mm-hmm. since I've woken up, I think six seven senior yeah. Labour MPs have resigned, basically saying well. that. We are resigning because we do not believe that Jeremy Corbyn tried hard enough in this Remain, uh, in the Remain uh, campaign, but that there is going to be a second general election very soon. And we need someone who can excite uh, the Labour base in those northern mill towns. It also recognises the fact that these people feel disenfranchised. So the political calculus in the United Kingdom at the moment is this. Is that David Cameron is gone, he's toast. The Tories uh, are going to go in for uh, a round of infighting. The Labour Party are doing it already. Politicians and the political establishment class do not want to leave the, the European Union. I, right. I think what will happen is that there will be a second general election because if somebody was to, you know, there is no way. That this parliament is the way it's constructed can actually sign a sign bills to leave the European Union because most MPs, an overwhelming majority of MPs, eighty percent, seventy percent, want to remain. So they can't do it in, a, in all good consciousness. So there will there, a new general election will be called maybe after the new uh, prime minister comes in power because he will start the the formal. Uh, mechanism to leave and those bills will just not pass they will not pass Mm -hmm. then there'll be a general election of which various MPs will say things like I want to remain whether they're Tory or Labour will not matter and already the Liberal Democrats have said we will fight the next general election saying that we want to remain within the EU so you will have MPs of all three major parties saying, if you vote for me, I'm going to remain. So then you'll have a parliament, you'll have a parliament returned, which overwhelmingly MPs will want to remain. These are possible that, you know, you'll have maybe more, uh, slightly more MPs that will want to leave, but still those remain MPs will be in the majority. They'll call a second referendum within uh, a year, and yeah. it will be voted down. This has happened in Ireland. Ireland had a similar thing, I forget, 10, 15 years ago. And I forget exactly what they were voting on. But they had one referendum which went against what the Irish government wanted. And in a year, they had another one. And then they got what they wanted. And it says, okay, that's the result we yeah. wanted. We're fine.
5: That's the good one.
4: Yeah, yeah. that was on the uh, Lisbon Treaty. There you go. There you go. So yeah, there, okay. there is there is yeah. precedent for this. It's just that, you know, for Ireland to um to to dither is one thing but for the united kingdom which is one of the main planks economically of the european union you know the second biggest in terms of population the second biggest in terms of economic size etc you know the ramifications are massive geopolitically but i'm telling you right here and now the united kingdom or at least let's call it in the safest way England and Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland will still be in the European Union in 10 years time whether yeah, it's called okay. the united kingdom i don't know
1: now now wait a minute so first of all i think i, I agree with that prediction like i uh, it's also kind of an optimistic prediction but it's the one that i uh, at the moment i just have to believe i mean it's just crazy to i'm in denial about them actually leaving but Tell us what would happen if, so if they actually leave, what does that mean? So let's say, you know, they invoke Article 50. They're out of the EU.
4: Mm. What's next? Okay. So immediately. Scotland um, and Northern Ireland. Well, <laughs> I don't know about Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland is Northern Ireland's a, f- a funny case. And I'll come on to Northern Ireland in, in a little bit. Um, yeah. Scotland is gone. Whether yeah. it takes one year, 18 months, three years, there will be a referendum in Scotland and Scotland will vote to leave the United Kingdom. Full. And join the EU. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Full stop. You know, that's yep. just absolute stone cold fact. Um, yep. However, Northern Ireland is, is a funny one. Now, num- Now, what a lot of people didn't understand or don't understand about the EU is that Norway has this weird uh, association with the EU that right. Norway, to all intents and purposes, is part of the EU but isn't. So it has no part in any of the governance of it but signs up to all the laws, the single market, free movement of uh, trade and uh, and of um, of, of labour. And it pays for this. Mm-hmm. So yep. um, so even the most rabid lever admits that, really, Britain would have Norway status. So that actually means that all these people in, in Northern Ireland that are running off and trying to get Irish passports needn't do that. Because we are still going to have free movement of, uh, of labour um,
1: Which doesn't that defeat the whole exactly. campaign, the whole Exactly, rhetoric?
4: exactly, yeah. okay. exactly. So, so the most rabid person that wants to leave, even they will go, well, okay, but we're still going to have those nice Germans coming into London and, and working in merchant banking companies. We're still going to be able to uh, buy German cars without a massive tariff. We're still going to... Yeah. So what this is is more of a philosophical political idea of of governance and, and of control that we are seen to be not giving up any of our political sovereignty but economically th- we are <laughs> we are I'm actually quite happy to do that and and people who mm-hmm. understand global trade understand that you need to be part of robust trading blocks they they get that but it's the the poor the relatively poor per- person in Bolton, in Burnley, in, in Wolverhampton, who comes out of school um, without great um, academic prospects, 50 years ago, they could have just walked yeah. into an apprenticeship and got themselves a decent job. You know, they say, "Well, this has got still got nothing to do with me." But anyway, I'm, I'm going on to a point which i kind of made before. Well, Northern they, Ireland. Maybe
1: they don't realize now they could they could well, go get a scholarship in Bucharest, <laughs> uh, you know, get a get a job offer uh, at, at an English at an at, at an American or English, mm-hmm. at, in any case, English speaking company, um, you know, in in uh, Paris or Berlin or Rome or anywhere they want. Uh, Madrid, and and then come back and retire in the UK when they're older. But I think people don't, I don't I, like. Are people just not that mobile?
4: Like, well, and, and it, but you know what? That's a really I mean, good point. People are not that mobile in in smaller towns throughout it opens the world. Up opportunities
1: for and, everyone, but really. but it's, it's
4: people are much more um mobile in bigger cities because they yeah, see I mean, because they fact, see people yeah. who are who are different and from other places and they realize well if they've come here I, I can kind of go, go somewhere there, else yes. somewhere too so it, it's these towns it's these communities which are much more settled historically that have voted against immigration and the joke is is that they're the most homogeneous places not all of yeah. them but a lot of them you know the irony is yeah. that the places that have said, "Oh yeah, we're, we're kind of pro open borders and immigration," are the most diverse places. Yeah, so, but no, anyway, Northern, Northern sense, Ireland. I mean, Northern yeah. Ireland. Let's quickly just go on to Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland is is is, is a strange situation in lots of ways in in um, in the United Kingdom. Number one, the main United Kingdom parties: the Lib Dems, the Labour Party, the Conservative Party. Do not stand in the in, in in the Stormont Parliament for historic reasons um, that they just don't campaign there. So you don't have uh, a Tory party in Northern Ireland. You don't have a Labour party, etc., etc. They have their own political parties over there, which are which line up nakedly on sectarian grounds. Now mm-hmm. um, I forget exactly what the current. Um, the current census would say but it's going to be something like 55 percent of the population of northern Ireland is protestant i could be wrong by a few degrees but i don't think it's 60 40 i think it's more 55 45 And, Mm -hmm. and and what that means is that the protestants want to be remain part of the united kingdom it was those protestants that fought back at the formation of the irish free state for ulster to remain God. part of the EU, okay, that still matters. Like, no, it, it's it's yeah. still it still matters. It still matters. Uh, the the, the still Good Friday
5: matters. agreements were are not that old. Yeah, and... no, 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 I
4: know. Twenty years, maybe. So, so. Yes, there is no major terrorism at all in Northern Ireland, but you have a Protestant but they still rump. vote along. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, you have yeah. a Protestant rump, whether it's the DUP or the or the official Unionist party, um, that vote on sectarian grounds, and the the majority of people in Northern Ireland want to be part of the EU. I'm oh, sorry, of the, of the United Kingdom. Full stop. Um, the Irish state. As and I forget what article it is of the Irish state but uh, it might be article one, article two I, I can't remember but very clearly says in its constitution that anybody born in the island of Ireland can claim an Irish passport so that is the reason right. why you've yeah. had this relative run on Irish uh, people applying for Irish passports um, in, in Northern Ireland because they can in effect still be, remain part of the EU don't worry guys even if we leave, you're still going to be able to have free movement, uh, yeah. you know, free movement within the, I mean, the European I, Union. I I even
1: thought about getting a German passport or, or even going for Czech citizenship just to make the paperwork that much easier. Like, I get it. If you can if you can have another passport. Yeah, there's no, there's no real harm in it, I guess. Mm. Um, If anything, it makes countries more interdependent. Having, having, having all these multinational, like, you know, people with multiple citizens. Yeah, but but what you're saying there, Trevor,
4: is somewhat anathema to those people and those more settled post-industrial blighted communities though you know they're like you know we need we need jobs we need opportunities right here and now but just to get get on just to finish up with with northern ireland that the northern the province of northern ireland is a massive economic drain on on the british state because we have uh, a military and security apparatus to maintain their um, it's much less than it used to be in the seventies and the eighties and the nineties when there were right, physically were yeah. British troops walking down the streets of Belfast. But still, um, it's um, it's a relatively poor region in British terms. Relatively poor. It's not a basket case. Don't get me wrong, but it's relatively poor, and it it is uh, and it survives partly or in in large part, sorry, on subsidies from the. Uh, UK government and the Irish state it would take. It would be a massive undertaking for the Irish state actually to take on Northern Ireland. You know, to take on all of its pensions, benefits, uh, obligations, etc., right, yeah, and could right. only do that with massive EU help because the because there's only and again um, I'm I'm not googling this but the, the the population of Ireland is only something like the Irish yeah. state it's something like five million. But the EU, yeah.
1: But I mean, it is yeah. possible
4: economically if it could be done, and the EU would have to massively go in and and help the the Irish state. But then you're going to have sectarian violence. You're going to have these Protestants going, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, You know, the Ulster Defence Force, you know, you're going to have uh, the potential for sectarian violence. There would have to be some associate status for Northern Ireland within a loose association of the Irish state we should have to be underpinned by EU governance because otherwise I, uh, so, those so, Protestants yeah, like, are not going to go for it they're just going to say but we've just fought since 1920s to to have a Protestant ascendancy in Ulster and you know we do not want to be part of a United Ireland it would be it'd be constitutionally I'm not saying it's impossible but constitutionally you, they would, people have to do backflips all over the place I,
5: I agree and I disagree though because part of the reason the Good Friday agreements have held is that whole Celtic tiger thing um, for most of the last 40 years, 30 years uh, the Irish economy has been doing gangbusters and if it's not doing it right now that doesn't mean that that's a permanent status and a lot of what a lot of the stability in Northern Ireland over the last couple couple of years has been due to economic activity that's been going across the border, and due to uh, at least some of the the Protestants in Northern Ireland going. Well, you know, in Belfast and most of Northern Ireland is as much a economic basket case as the Northern England as Northern England, and all those towns that you're talking about. Um, and it's a rust belt city from in American terms. Uh, and it's been, uh, and that wasn't helped by the fact that there was a massive civil war going on. Uh, and it's been what economic activity exists in, in Belfast and in, in the North in general has been due to tourism from, uh, people coming up from the South and then, um, uh, with investment from London, Uh, there has been sort of a post-industrial pickup to a certain extent and a lot of that's due to being in the EU, which is why they voted so overwhelmingly to remain and to at least some of the people, regardless of religion in Northern Ireland, this vote has to look like, from their perspective, um, England just threw them under the bus (laughs) economically. Um, I, I don't disagree though that it would be a tear for the. I, I was I was oranges. reading an
1: article. Maybe there's parallels here with Northern Ireland. I was reading an article about Cornwall, where they just yes, kind of realized, like, yes. wait a minute, a, a lot of the subsidies came from the EU directly because they're kind yeah. of a, a you know a, a poorer place, and then and then they're kind of like asking themselves, like, now wait a minute, is London going to pick up the tab of these millions of pounds a year, you know, that came in every yes. year? Their, their um, big uh,
5: economic asset was ferry ports going to Brittany.
1: <laughs> yeah. So
5: whoops. Oh, because
3: that's
1: yeah. That's I mean that's going to be a tertiary border crossing now. Um, but yeah. It, you, you know.
4: Well, well, it, it, well, i I guarantee you it, it won't be. It won't be. But yeah. the you know because before the and I think I kind of kind of said this what uh, way back when about my whole kind of theory of these kind of concentric cultural circles but there hasn't been um even at the height of the troubles in northern ireland um yes there were border crossings but you didn't need to show your passport per se you know so there was actually free movement of people before yeah, okay. uh, you know, the, the Lisbon Treaty or, 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 or whatever between the United Kingdom and Ireland. And actually, Ireland has had this special status within the UK whereby ever since the foundation of the Irish Free State, um, you as an Irish person could come and just live in the UK. So in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, you could just come and pick yourself up, move to the UK, um, and you were treated as being a British citizen and could vote in British elections straight away. You were not seen okay. technically as being a foreigner, even though Ireland wasn't part of the Commonwealth when it got independent, and you know, and you know, obviously left the the British Empire. My parents came when there was that still same movement, uh, and uh, you know, for people from from the British Empire. But those. Uh, barriers were then put up in the 60s and the 70s. So by, let's say, the 1970s, if you were Jamaican or Indian or Pakistani, you then had to apply to come to the United Kingdom and and go through immigration and have a visa, etc. That's never happened with Ireland and won't. So whatever happens... Um, that border between Ulster and the Irish Republic will still will be, so that's, yeah, you know, yeah. just be something In- on, independent on a piece of, anything of paper. Else that yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's yeah. not going to happen. That's not going to happen. So,
5: it is interesting though. I I do think that the um, I agree, uh, and I I do think that the the Ulstermen aren't going to or the, the Orangists aren't going to leave the UK. Uh, they aren't going to be okay with joining the Irish Free State straight off, but uh, they also have more of a cultural affinity with Scotland than uh, England per se. Uh, most of them are Presbyterian, and as opposed to Anglican. So, if Scotland left the UK, it might be interesting to see what happened. Uh, it, that might be a we might be talking about like a forty year process. Hmm. But um, anyway, this is all very wild speculation. Uh, at this point.
4: And- and it which is some so, some somewhat strange for us uh lovers of history to be wild, wildly speculating. Normally we like to I like, know. look look back. I'm just thinking we're gonna have to forwards. have a part
1: two in a couple of years here. We're gonna have to re <laughs> reconvene, <laughs> yeah. listen to the old episode and then be like, Okay, here's what we got right, here's what we got wrong
4: and boy did we not see this coming. Yeah. Like who no, knew? There, there are gonna be many twists and turns. Uh, before yeah. the end of the next week before we get on to oh, sure. the, yeah. the end of the year with this. But just to just to wrap up gentlemen um what now for europe is the european dream over
5: we uh, i mean so much of that it depends on the next few weeks and the next few months and yeah. uh, the parliament that gets elected like you've been saying
1: i'm just so optimistic that not really anything's going to effectively change i mean i would say if anything now's a great time to invest in the market because uh it's all going to bounce back and everything's going to be fine.
5: <laughs> I, <laughs> Keep calm and carry on. Right. <coughs> that said, I mean, there are these um, Euroskeptic parties across Europe um, that have been upset at things. And and it should be said that there's some economic aspects of the EU that are worth complaining about <laughs> beyond not the immigration stuff there's. Uh, it does have kind of a bloated bureaucracy and and things like that. Um, you know, and there's, there's these cultural divides beyond the English Channel that, you know, Northern and Western Europe themselves look down on Southern and Eastern Europe. And there, there's some pretty big aspects of that. But uh, as we've said earlier, I think one of the big issues is going to be the relationship between France and Germany. Um, and there's a whole... Lot of question marks there because I don't think either country is, really knows where they're going to be in five years.
1: Yeah, question marks again. Now, I mean, yeah, all these nationalistic movements in I mean, France and Germany. Germany, I hope it's still they're not going to have any kind of real power in parliament, but they're just they're still on the rise. Is the yeah. that's the scary part.
5: Merkel has a pretty good grasp on the reins right now, so Germany's maybe a little
4: bit more stable, but... It's more stable, stable. I'd say, but yeah. France, jeez.
1: What is happening?
4: (laughs) I don't think we have to worry too much about the fate of the European Union just yet. If it gets reduced by one member state, it'll be, you know, that'll be just about it. Um, The European Union still has a future. Whether the United Kingdom has one... um, I'm still quite bullish about it, but I freely admit that I'm a, I am an eternal optimist. Uh, gentlemen, it's been great speaking to you today. I've been joined by Ben Jacobs over there in the good US of A, and also by Travis Dow, um, who is sat in Santa Clara. I've been Royful Brown, sat in a very sunny uh, East Bay in California also. Uh, God bless uh, the United Kingdom. Let's not screw it up, guys. <laughs> There you go.
1: God save the queen. Oh. But uh, <laughs> but uh, within the EU, please. Thanks.
3: <laughs> the Agora Podcast Network. Agora is a marketplace of the mind where intelligent, independent podcasts meet curious and discerning listeners. Our network of shows includes
4: American Biography. The Bohemian Podcast. How Jamaica Conquered the World. The History of the Papacy the history of england the history of the alchemy podcast mid-atlantic to when diplomacy fails
1: hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80 percent less than clay litter
4: The Secret Cabinet from German. Ten, Ten American presidents. presidents. The History of Germany Podcast.
3: The AgoropodcastNetwork.com. Listen to Agora today.